that is what Barack and I think about every day as we try to guide and protect our girls through the challenges of this unusual life in the spotlight. How we urge them to ignore those who question their father's citizenship or faith. How we insist that the hateful language they hear from public figures on TV does not represent the true spirit of this country. that when someone is cruel or acts like a bully, you don't stoop to their level. No, our motto is, when they go low, we go high. of color sit around and discuss great books and whine about the winter because it's been a tough winter. <laughs> Each episode will feature a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or tea shops or in each other's homes. We are right now at Todd's house, so thank you, Todd and Lucia. Thank you. Thank you, Bash, the dog who's around somewhere, for You're hosting welcome. us. <laughs> um, I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. I'm Adriana Estel, and I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. I'm Crystal Mota, and I teach African American History at McAllister College. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African American Literature and Culture, Folklore, and Cultural Studies in the English Department at the University <laughs> of St. <laughs> All right, so in this episode, we're discussing a book that we assume that everybody has read because it's sold like billions of copies. Did um, you guys see how much money? How much? How much? How much? The two of them together, $65 million wow. advance for these two. Wow. By two. $65 million. Barack and Michelle Obama. So today we're discussing Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. And I don't think anybody listening to this podcast actually needs an introduction to Michelle Obama, but in case for some reason you've missed the last, I don't know, 10 years of American yeah, Living history. under a rock. <laughs> uh, Michelle Obama is an American writer, lawyer, and university administrator who was the first lady of the United States from 2009 to 2017. She grew up on the south side of Chicago and graduated from Princeton University um, and Harvard Law School. So, uh, spoiler alerts as usual, but... <laughs> I'll just give you the ending. Her husband becomes the president of the United States, and she becomes first our first African American uh, first lady. So you know, it only and they lasted have, eight years though. They had to go home. Yeah, yeah. They had to go home, and then, home, and then we have what leave. we have now. So. They, they, <laughs> we're we're just gonna get real, yeah, yeah, real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did want to start actually by asking Crystal to start us off. Why? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> because I wanted to actually ask you about what you thought about Obama's descriptions of growing up on the south side of Chicago. Because I know that when we read E. Ewing's poetry mm-hmm. collection, you sort of noted, you know, that you knew that she was like definitely from Chicago when she talked about riding her bike around the city, and mm-hmm. you were like, okay, she's real. She's from Chicago. So just curious about what struck you about Michelle Obama's take on being a kid from Chicago as a kid from Chicago yourself. Yeah, that's actually a great question for me because 
um, I think being the historian that I am, I actually liked the first section of the book the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm, I'm less critical of the first section. Um, and I think partially because I think in Michelle Obama telling her uh, personal history, we still can see um, kind of broader African-American history through yeah. her life and through her story. Um, and particularly when I think about uh, African-Americans in the urban North uh, and specifically about Chicago, but kind of thinking about um, the migration stories mm-hmm. of her family, the work stories of her family, um, some of the cultural history, uh, she t- uh, <laughs> Todd, <laughs> making a sound. Sorry, the cultural histories, um, and we can get into all of these things more. But I really, um, that was the section that really um, it made me cry. It was Aww. such a an endearing section, um, and it's specifically thinking about Chicago. Like some of the moments in the book that I thought, man, yes. Because I, I mean, not only am I um, from Chicago, but I'm from the South Side. Mm-hmm. And I grew up kind of adjacent to the neighborhood that she grows up in. Okay. And so some of the landmarks are the same. Kind of thinking about um, South Jeffrey, thinking about some of the restaurants her mm-hmm. uh, family love, like Italian Fiesta pizza joint. I mean, when I think about. Italian Fiesta, that's the pizza joint that my family, nice. we order from. <laughs> yeah. Does that still exist? It still exists. That's it cool. is. And, cool. and, you know, it's, 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 it's debatable because usually people will say, oh, Giordano's is the best pizza in Chicago because it has that, it's the stuffed crust, well, the deep dish pizza. Mm. But Italian Fiesta is like the south side, greasy, thin crust, delicious. If you ever go, go. Um, mm. But kind of thinking about the the... You know, how she navigates the South Side, mm-hmm. the bus, going to school at Whitney Young, which is mm-hmm. where I went to high school. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't All of these that. connections. Um, mm-hmm. I just felt that I was reliving parts of my childhood as I was reading it, but also reliving parts of my childhood, but also having kind of the background explanation and analysis I didn't have growing mm-hmm. up. And so seeing all of that was just really special. Yeah. I was curious um, about that, right? Because I feel like mm-hmm. in the same neighborhood, but also she was growing up at a time when it was transitioning right. from being mm-hmm. racially and ethnically mixed mm-hmm. to all black, basically. Right, right. So did you, like, how did you yeah. experience? So by the time, you know, I was growing up, it was all black. Okay. You know, it was all black. And for me, I think growing up in you know, segregated Chicago, it really formed the basis of who I am. And Mm so, you know, of course, there are some limitations growing up in a segregated city, um, but that really shaped who I am, my identity, uh, my cultural awareness, Mm -hmm. my sense of um, who I could be and what I could be. Because I was in Chicago, I mean, on the South Side, the South Side is huge, Mm -hmm. but but thinking about kind of the the South Side closest to the lake, you know, you get the full range of black life and black experience, mm-hmm. right? You get professional people to working people to poorer people. Mm-hmm. Um, you see gang life. You see drug. I mean, you just see it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got a chance to see it all, mm-hmm. um, but also see possibilities. Um, and so by the time I was growing up, it was just, you know, there was, yeah, I was all black. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that for the first section um, was most was most touching. And I, I what I what I also um, and I feel like I shouldn't talk so much. But the other the other part of the first section that really I resonated with um, was her narration of the sacrifice of her. Yeah family particularly her parents to mm-hmm. yeah. um get her to get her to the place the places that she went right yeah. Yeah. um and i remember she was narrating um i think a high school trip to france yeah mm-hmm. to france and she was just gonna not go i think right. was the way mm-hmm. the story she didn't went. tell them about it yeah. right yeah. Um, but then when they find out that this trip is happening, they make a way for her to go. And I, and that part really struck me and really was special to me because I remember the same thing happening to me mm-hmm. when I was in high school, uh, my high school choir that I was a part of, we were going on a trip to Puerto Rico. Um, and I thought, oh, we really can't afford this. But I actually did tell my mom and she was like, oh, we'll make it happen. Like you're going to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think about the sacrifices of her parents and we see that sacrifice continually being made, especially as we get into later sections with her mom moving to the White House. Um, but really kind of the sacrifice of her parents, the influence of family um, really resonated. I think it really made an impact on her, too. Right. Yes. I mean, because later in the yeah. book, when she's talking about things that really mm-hmm. impress her as first lady that she sees a really have an impact on it. It's like people have made they mm-hmm. made sacrifices. Like she seems mm-hmm. really enamored with military yeah. Uh, yes. veterans. That's who, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I didn't even like, like her, make that connection actually. Yeah, yeah I mean, I just wonder if it comes from mm-hmm. there, you know, yeah. because especially with her father, you know, having right. MS, right, right, and his body sort of you yeah. know breaking down mm-hmm. at a young age, yeah. and then mm-hmm. I just remember that scene where um, he's on crutches, yes. and she wants yeah. him to stay home and rest, and like mm-hmm. he goes and he sits on the. Step and then the next thing she looks at and he's gone to work, right? right? Like and I'm just imagining Mm -hmm. that he did this job, you know, almost every day, right up almost to the end of his life, even though he was um, not Mm -hmm. mobile, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that really, you know, must have made an impression on her if that people do things despite their body not allowing them to, or people make sacrifices for other right. people. Right. Um, that really mm-hmm. seems to be something she values a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find a part in the book, if you want to look at that, mm-hmm. just to quote from the book a little bit, I guess it was 5960. Mm-hmm. And she says, um, oh, this is when her brother was in college, because like, who's in college? My, uh, so this is her. Mm-hmm. My parents never spoke once about of the stress of having to pay for college for her brother, uh, but I knew enough to appreciate it was there. So when my French teacher announced she'd be leading an optional class trip to Paris mm-hmm. over one of her breaks for those who could come up with the money to do it, mm-hmm. I didn't even bother to raise the issue at home. This was the difference between me and the Jack and Jill kids, many of whom were my close friends. I had a loving and orderly home, bus fare to get me across town to school, and a hot meal to come home to at night. Beyond that, I wasn't going to ask my parents for a thing. Mm-hmm. Yet, one evening, my parents sat me down looking puzzled. My mom had learned about the France trip through Terry Johnson's mom. Why didn't you tell us, she said, because it's too much money. That's not actually for you to decide, Mish, my dad said gently, almost offended. And how are we supposed to decide if we don't even know about it? I looked at them both, unsure of what to say. My mother glanced at me, her eyes soft. My father had changed out of his work uniform and into a clean white shirt. They were in their early 40s then, married nearly 20 years. Neither of them had ever vacationed in Europe. They never took beach trips or went out to dinner. They didn't own a house. We were their investment, me mm-hmm. and Craig. Mm-hmm. Everything went into us. And then she says, right, yeah. she went to Paris. That's <clears throat> that's interesting to me, too. I, I mean, I was just thinking when you were reading it. I didn't think about this at the time that I was reading it. But when you're reading it and you're talking about it, 
you know, that's so many parents sort of feel that way about their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, my, like my experience, I think, is not that my parents thought of me as they'll put, you know, whatever resources they have into me, but that it's a sort of like an investment of teaching. And not that they didn't, it seems like they were doing that too. But I can, I just think of having that same conversation and my parents probably being like, well, you ain't going, you know, like, <laughs> or something like that because they, or they'd say, well, if you want to go, you have to go work. You, maybe if you couldn't raise the money, money. you could go. Yeah. It was a kind of yeah. a different sort of attitude mm-hmm. or point mm-hmm. of view mm-hmm. where I never felt like, you know, my parents were going to, well, we'll find the money for you to do. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like, no, you need to do it yourself, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. different, not better or worse, but mm-hmm. just a kind of mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of um, feeling. And I wonder if that has anything to do with class or if, if the her parents had sort of class aspirations for their kids in a way mm-hmm. that maybe my parents being, you know, sort of yeah. more rural didn't sort of yes. have a vision of what, that. you know, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, upper middle class black yeah. life could right. be this or something right. like that. Because I'm assuming they don't have a Jack and Jill where you were. No, we didn't. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't think we did. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't. I, I think it was a very city <laughs> thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah. 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 I didn't, you know, I didn't really know um, rich black people. Yeah. Uh, and I just, re- I was home about a month ago or something, and I just asked my dad, I was like, Dad, so they, my mom and dad grew up in this uh, small town in Missouri, Marshall, Missouri, which is about halfway between Kansas City and St. Louis, and I was like, hey, Dad, were there any rich black people in mm-hmm. Marshall? And he was like, oh, well, there were, and he started naming, like, <laughs> just maybe a couple of people, and it was like, yeah. well, you know, such and such ran the barbecue joint, and they were pretty well off, and, okay. and he started mm-hmm. naming these people, but he was like, none of them were really what I'd call rich, I mean, they just... <laughs> Yeah. They had, you know, enough yeah. money and they right. had a, like a new car or something right. or a nice mm-hmm. car or something like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah that notion of kind of wealthy yeah. black mm-hmm. existence, mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. really yeah. was in their minds necessarily. Yeah. It certainly wasn't in mine. Because it was also the particular high school she went to, right? Mm-hmm. Like there was actually like not racial diversity, but there was class diversity. Yeah. Is yeah. that true? That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's mm-hmm. true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so when you say, like, you, there's the whole spectrum mm-hmm. of black existence mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Is, that is on the south side that, of Chicago, yeah. Yeah. everything from some people who are really poor mm-hmm. all the way up to people who are really wealthy, mm-hmm. professionals, right. criminals, whatever, mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. in between. between. Yeah. yeah, I think you maybe have, like, a little bit, a much a narrower kind of spectrum if you're in a, a you know, in a, in a rural or small mm-hmm. town environment or something mm-hmm. like that, but I don't, I don't know. I also wonder how the, like, the migration itself, like, changes aspirations in some ways, right? Because yeah. I think there's a particular way in which mm-hmm. if you're moving out, you're also always trying to move up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So I kind of wonder how, because mm-hmm. she comes from a family, right, mm-hmm. who migrated from the South to the North, yeah. whether there were sort of yeah. particular kinds of aspirations that were right. shaped yeah. by the right. move. And right. see, like, interestingly, I don't want to turn this into just, like, my whole family history or whatever, but <laughs> interestingly, like, my my mom's parents mm-hmm. went to Chicago, mm-hmm. but they came back. Oh. They were like, mm, Really? No, not, not for us. Yeah, not for <laughs> really? us. They were there for a couple of years, and then they came oh. back, you Wow. Know? So, I mean, this, that like, might sort of separate. 20s or 30s or later? I don't know exactly. They okay. must have been in their, yeah, late 20s, early 30s or something like that and wow my grandpa was a mechanic and mm-hmm. I, he, I, I think my mom tells the story they knew someone who went up there right. who said come yep. up yep and yep. so they mm-hmm. did and maybe i think maybe just my grandpa went i think mm-hmm. maybe he lived mm-hmm. with this this couple for a while yeah and then it didn't he didn't, it didn't like it so he came mm-hmm. back you know <laughs> and um that might sort of separate yeah. Right. Dif- yeah, different yeah. kinds of attitudes you know yeah mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. so one thing I wanted to point us back to is that actually the the whole book and 
Michelle Obama is actually a really beautiful writer, right? Mm -hmm. I, I feel like we can't yeah. like um, it's not just a memoir, yeah. right? That's like yeah. you know lackadaisical or telling things bit by bit. <laughs> no, like there's like a real art to yes. the way she sets it up. In the very first chapter, you know, she's talking about you know she and her family live on the second floor of this mm -hmm. two, um, mm -hmm. you know, like um, home kind of place. And it's the very first sentence is, I spent much of my childhood listening to the sound of striving. Mm -hmm. She's talking about her yeah. great aunt who's right. teaching piano. Right. But, but I think this really yeah, gets to everything that, that we're yes. talking about, yeah. right? Like yeah. that this, th this is so much a distinction between her and Barack when mm -hmm. she finally meets mm -hmm. him, right. right? That she has been raised in many ways to see her parents sacrifice and to feel the responsibility right. of yeah. her own then kind of like striving towards mm -hmm. some kind of betterness that that will, mm -hmm. you know, um, be a testament to their care and sacrifice. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. But it's all individual, right? It's her and her family, as opposed to Barack, who, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons, you know, is coming in and saying, like, actually, like, you, you know, I'm less interested in what I can do for me, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to what I can do, you know, in a right. community, yeah. like that different orientation. Now, Anita can go into her structural analysis of this. <laughs> no, just because I feel like, I think there is a difference because he had had some of that individual right. comfort he could take for granted, right? And I, you know, I was saying this like before we started, you know, recording the podcast is that I wish that we would talk a little bit more about their different upbringings, right, in terms of, and this isn't about, I'm not sort of saying anything about their racial identity, but the fact that, right, he grew up with those white grandparents and kind of thinking about the particular historical moment in which mm -hmm. they were both growing up and like the kinds of opportunities that his grand, his white grandparents would have had mm -hmm. because of how racialized opportunities were mm -hmm. compared to like, yeah. you know, um, Michelle mm -hmm. Obama's like mm -hmm. grandpa, right, Southside or other grandpa. Well, their migration is like from Kansas to Hawaii right. as opposed right. to Chicago, right? right? Like right. it's a whole different kind of yeah. migration, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is sort of different, but I was sort of thinking, and we're just kind of jumping ahead, but I think one of the things that really intrigued me was her discussion about her mom's choices mm -hmm. to, like, stay home. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that comes up when she's, like, then thinking about, right. um, is it when... Was it when Barack was going to run for president? I can't remember when she was, like, having that moment of, like... I mean, she she it. had a couple of moments, right? Because it, when Malia was first born, mm. she... Um, also, like, had to stay at home for a little, like, the whole infertility. Like, mm -hmm. that that's a whole other story, right? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like this is so intimate, like, getting told yes. the story of infertility issues and mm -hmm. you know, the work that they have to do mm -hmm. to become parents. But so, for you know, we first get some hint of, like, yeah. you know, should I stay home? What would that look like? And mm -hmm. she does stay home for a little bit. But then, yes, um, yeah. while he states, or had he just lost the state position and but he was thinking about presidency. Right, he lost it's the state. Was it state senate race yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Well, they, I, and I think right. that's it when it got okay, started ramping up for that. president. Yeah, and I just found that fascinating, right? Because I feel like that's such a like story of the late twentieth and twenty first century for women to have to think about these kinds of things and to think about that in contrast, perhaps with our moms, right? Um, and well, I remember, like, I think you know another interesting layer on this with Michelle Obama is how much she thinks about wanting to have fulfillment in her life from yes. what she's doing yes. and yes. her job. And, yeah. and so there's yes. that conversation she has with her mother yes. where she's, yeah, where she's like, should I, um, should I take this job? Right. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I think her mom says something like, well, I'd take, keep the money and right. worry about the, you know, worry about being happy yeah. exactly. later. Yeah. Uh -huh. exactly. Which yes. I kind of yeah. thought like, yeah, I think that may be what my mom would say. <laughs> <laughs> but it, she, her mom has this sort of um, pretty pragmatic. Right. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting in that 
and we're just talking about how much her parents are about sacrificing for her, but then also they her mom has this really pragmatic kind of attitude mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. like you don't have to you know um, always be happy with what you're doing. Right. Like if you're making money, then you will be happy. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's. I don't think they're at odds with each other, but no. it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting right. how that kind of bumps up against it. it but it's, the, it's the next step of striving, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, uh, Craig goes through the exact same thing. I think right. that's actually a right. really lovely way, the way she talks about how she was going through this kind of crisis at the same time that Craig was. Mm-hmm. They'd both done exactly what they were supposed, supposed to, move to do, through yeah. the, the mm-hmm. paces. Um, but they've, you know, shifted class enough. They've mm-hmm. had this class mobility that allows them to have this yeah. next step of like, but is this all there is? Yes. Right. 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 Um, so someone who's at at her mother and father's level don't have that privilege. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, I know I'm going back, but when you mentioned the, um, the whole issue of gender, um, mm-hmm. on page 189, when uh, they're trying to get pregnant, it was just like this really like... Uh, brutally honest kind of discussion of what it meant Mm -hmm. and how the burden really fell on her. Mm -hmm. Um, And she says, it was maybe then that I felt a first flicker of resentment involving politics and Brock's unshakable commitment to the work. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I was just feeling the acute burden of being female. Mm -hmm. Either way, he was gone and I was here carrying the responsibility. I sensed already that the sacrifices would be more mine than his. Right, and she talks about all the like medical stuff, Mm -hmm. right? You know, he was doting, invested, my husband doing what he could do. He read all the IVF literature and would talk to me all night about it. But his only actual duty was to show up at the doctor's <laughs> office and provide some sperm. And then if he chose, he could go have a martini afterward. And I just, I, I yeah, really yeah. love, it's refreshingly honest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and also um, impassable. Right, like yeah. this is just what it is, yeah. and even the best spouse in the world isn't going to uh, recalibrate. Yeah. It, is it also? I mean, I'm thinking a couple of things. I mean, I think it's also exacerbated by the kind of person that that Barack is. Right. I mean, there's that constant sort of contrast between the two of them. The one who um, is constantly sort of worried about things and caring about things and trying to keep things orderly. And the one and who, the dreamer, the dreamer, right? right who throws lives in a cloud, clothes yeah. everywhere. Goes, I feel like I mean, that's love... gonna be like before we get to the Michelle Barack thing, which I want. I yeah. just want to make sure that I feel like you wanted to say something about the moms and the kind of is there. Was I there was something? gonna point to the okay, to the okay, conversation. Sure that, the, the, so. All right, yeah. go ahead. No, I mean I think it just comes back and back and back again. And I remember at the end where she's talking about uh, the attention that she has to pay to how she looks when she's first mm-hmm. lady, mm-hmm. Yes. and how she would look at him grabbing a suit <laughs> right. and basically making a decision of like, do I put a tie on or not right. or whatever. Like, of course, then that base suit got him into like terrible <laughs> right. difficulties. So. <laughs> that's honestly like specifically about being a president and first lady, right? Like that's well, true, I think that's a male. Like, yeah, 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 that's yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. say. It's yeah. just like obviously heightened for her because yes. she's right. like showing up on cameras. Right, and, like, right, right. And, yeah. and, you know, like if you're, um, if you're a man in public, you know, like a person a man who's gonna dress like a businessman i guess which is basically yeah i mean like you're not gonna get scrutinized (laughs) in the same way and um it's just not the same thing and i I just wanted to go back to um something adriana said about the michelle obama's a writer Mm. and i think everything that we're talking about so far is um 
is attributable to her really good writing in this mm-hmm. book. And I have to say, like, when we first decided to read this book, like, I wasn't super excited about it because I was kind of thinking Because everybody's it was... reading it and you're not... No, 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 no. I've never that. really read anything she written before. Right. So I you didn't know, know about I thought like, it was yeah. going to be kind of like yeah. ghost-written, mm-hmm. kind of like... Right, right. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and it's not, I mean, it's not, in, I wouldn't say it's entirely devoid of, like, platitudes and things like, it's right. got some moments. Yes. But it yeah. also has some moments of really great writing mm-hmm. and really sort of mm-hmm. thoughtful yes. kind of engagement mm-hmm. with yes. issues and ideas and honesty, as you were saying. I mean, I yeah. think the honesty is, you know, there's there's a few, there's five or six real moments when you're like, oh, my God. Mm. Yeah. Because she's, not just because she's revealing something to you, mm-hmm. but because she's revealing something personal to you in an honest way. Yeah. And she's thinking about it. Like, it's not yeah. just like, hey, here's that. It's like, yeah. I'll use this to get at some larger point. Right. And, you know, you had those two moments, um, the IVF, but also the miscarriage. They're within three pages yep. of each other. Yep. And she's talking about, with regard to the miscarriage, how um, this is a sort of hidden part of women's lives, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how they, um, it's not, you don't say publicly that you had a miscarriage. I mean, things mm-hmm. like that, you know, and, and I wanted to plug, so I'm just going to plug, because just last week I heard, um, I was at a reading where Cal Calia Yang was reading, and she said that uh-huh. um, she and Shannon Gibney are putting out a collection, should be coming out soon, of writing on miscarriage, of wow. losing babies. Mm. Um, so it, I think, like, this is the first book I know of yeah. <laughs> that is on that subject by women who have had miscarriages. And yeah, so, that'll be amazing. Yeah, so, I mean, that this is what she's talking about in the book, right? She, right. I mean, she doesn't know about this collection, but it really is that there's a silence well, around something. Miscarriage, like IVF, and then marriage counseling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the marriage counseling, too, in this, like, just... I mean, I don't know how you can talk about marriage counseling in a, a beautiful way, but yeah. she does. Yeah. Like, so on page 207, right, she's talking about, like, having this kind of, like, you know, this counselor who doesn't take sides for either of them, but, mm-hmm. like, gets them to work together yeah, in right. new and different ways. And on the top of page 207, she says, this was my pivot point, my moment of self-arrest. Like a climber about to slip off an icy peak, I drove my axe into the ground. Mm-hmm. That isn't to say that Brock didn't make his own adjustments, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I made mine, and they helped me, which then helped yeah. us. Yeah. And it's just such a, you know, like, it's, there's a lack of um, embarrassment Mm-hmm. about it which is i think you know important uh in a book that's going to be read by many yeah. people who could be helped by counseling mm-hmm. and i think just to go to a couple pages before that right i think like she says that brock's reluctant to try couples counseling this idea that mm-hmm. it's not about actually being smart or intelligent because they both clearly are yeah. right? that you can't just like think your way out of yeah which i also appreciate it right because i think there's sort of this struck him as uncomfortable, if not a tad dramatic. <laughs> Couldn't he just run over to Borders and buy some relationship books? <laughs> the discussions we've been, I just feel like there is a stigma still, right, yeah. in terms of kind of thinking about... And I think well, there's sort of all these like, cultural reasons for which right. that happens, but I also think yeah. about, right, like all of us are professors, right, in some ways, like right. we should be able to like handle all of these things mm-hmm. and just like we're smart people, we should be able to think through that, and I really appreciate it. And like no, that specific point yeah. that she made too. And I think, you know, the, the gender aspect of it too. I mean, how yeah. often is it the the woman who is in, who's asking the, the husband to mm. and he's sort of like, We can handle this ourselves or whatever, you know, like I don't um, know, Todd. That <laughs> that's exactly how it happened with me. Well, I, didn't mean that. I was like, There ain't no problem, it's cool. And I was like, Oh sh- 
Oh, wow, wow. Maybe I should think about these other things, right? Yeah. I think Barack and I are very much similar. <laughs> except for the political ambitions. <laughs> you'd, you'd be great. Yeah. No, I'd be terrible. <laughs> before I, before I uh, flip the switch, uh, switch um, and be more critical, I wanted to... Um, so a part of the first section of the book, and I think it's in the first section, um, but it kind of connects to kind of the sacrifices that Michelle is making and the difficulty she's having kind of balancing her personal professional life. And she uses this um, kind of phrase, she swerved mm -hmm. in terms of changing when she decided to, um, you know, stop being a lawyer and basically mm -hmm. yeah. um, go into nonprofit um, mm -hmm. leadership. Mm -hmm. And that part of the... Um, of the book really st struck me because we see her, you know, number one grappling with her professional identity, but what, but also this professional identity has been, become such a part of her own sense of who she is. Mm -hmm. And so she's kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this, but then giving herself the freedom to explore. And I think that's really, really important for particularly high achieving black women mm -hmm. to have an example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, you work so hard and you're on this path to whatever you think you're on, but you may need to change course mm -hmm. um, and it's OK to do that. And so seeing her kind of really grapple with, OK, what will this mean? You know, not only what it what will it mean for my identity, but also financially, I'm making mm -hmm. basically six figures going mm -hmm. down to half of half of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and so we see her grapple with that. But then she's like, well, I had to swerve. Mm -hmm. And it was this swerve that kind of made her uh, made the difference and made her feel more fulfilled um, mm -hmm. in her profession and so I that part of part one also and was important part two, yeah. part two? And okay. I, I want to add to that because what's I think especially like um, powerful about the way she tells the story mm -hmm. is that all of these pivotal moments in her life she's definitely an actor an important actor mm -hmm. right there in the middle but she recognizes these pasts in these people mm -hmm. who have helped her do mm -hmm. the things that she's doing yeah, exactly. so like right. in the case of the swerve mm -hmm. right it's that college boyfriend kevin right. who like at the time she you know like she clearly um you know enjoyed spending time with him mm -hmm. and she talks about like you know they really like liked each other but she also kind of thought he was nuts right mm -hmm. he graduates with a great degree and afterwards decides to become a mascot for yeah. a sports <laughs> right, right, that right, right. Awesome. right. And so she's like, <laughs> what is it? But like, she tells us that story and at the mm -hmm. moment, like I'm thinking like, why is she telling us about this swerve? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's because it is an, like a, a um, what's the word I want? It's a path, right? It's these ways of thinking differently and it's the same thing with you know, um, people like Santita or mm -hmm. Suzanne, mm -hmm. these important mm -hmm. friendships in her life. I love how she talks about her girlfriends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, that this is not just a world of family, although family is important. Right. There are these relationships that are built through mm -hmm. school mm -hmm. um, that, um, you know, she talks at one point about college, how one of the important things she learned in college was that there are a lot of different ways of being and mm -hmm. that her control freak self, and right. she talks about it that way, yeah. was not the only way. And mm -hmm. she realizes, like, when um, Suzanne dies, like, that is, like, yeah. really the, the start of her, mo of her mm -hmm. moment to, like, look at her life and say, is this enough? No. Right. Right. And you don't have all the time in the world. Yeah. Right, it, right. Something yeah. could happen mm -hmm. at any time. Suzanne dies, and I think it's, like, the very next year her mm -hmm. father dies. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I um, think, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, just to quickly, I think, sort of the sacrifices and the swerving. So she kind of talks about why she got involved with Public Allies, which was mm -hmm. that program where it kind of brought mm -hmm. in lots yeah. of, like, uh, that was, like, an intriguing program, actually, yeah. Yeah. sort of. But she says... Um, it says 176. 
Uh, as I contemplated the new job, my mind often traveled back to childhood, and in particular to the month or so I'd spent in the pencil flying pandemonium at that second grade classroom at Bryn Mawr Elementary, before my mother had the wherewithal to have me plucked out. In the moment, I had felt nothing but relief by my good fortune, but as my luck in life seemed only snowball from there, I thought more about the 20 or so kids who'd been marooned mm. in that classroom, stuck mm-hmm. with an uncaring and unmotivated mm-hmm. teacher. I knew I was no smarter than any of them. I just had the advantage of an advocate. And mm-hmm. I love, like, I just feel mm-hmm. like that is, like, one of these things yeah. that I think comes up a lot in, like, educational studies, right? This notion of, like, mm-hmm. kids who benefit when you have an advocate. But, like, yeah, like, she got right. lucky. She got plucked out. But what mm-hmm. about those other mm-hmm. kids, yes, right? right? And I always, like, talk about this moment. I can't remember the name of it. But what is that Will Smith movie? It's, like, a true movie of somebody... Um, <laughs> which so one? Like, he's made like, a few. He's, anyway, so there's this like the pursuit of happiness. Yes, thank you. It is not. <laughs> I people think of it. But that is not a true story. Is it? I thought it was based on a true story. Is it really? Anyway, yeah, it's okay. a real guy. So there's yeah. a scene but where I don't think it's a real story. Um, so there's the a scene where like he and his son are like outside this. That's not the point. <laughs> so there's a scene where he and his kid are outside this homeless shelter. And there's like, you know, so they get lucky and they get uh, put in, but then mm-hmm. the camera pans and you see there's like a whole yeah. line, right? There's yeah. like a whole yeah. block of people yeah. and it's kind of thinking about this notion of like they got lucky and they got in and it sort of right. helped him get to where he was. But it's like, what about all those other people? people. Right. Um, so I did appreciate her sort of well, thinking about that in a particular kind of way. And I think, you know, this is, I was going to say that, you know, you're talking about the girlfriends and I think this connects to what you're saying, Anita. She does talk a lot about how the kind of networks of friends and family and colleagues and like how that helps her in yeah. her mm-hmm. moves from one job mm-hmm. to another. Mm-hmm. From one, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Valerie Jarrett basically right. gets her. I was her, just going to yeah. say. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so like you meet someone, that person ends up being like mm-hmm. a really instrumental and important in your professional life and your personal life. And I think maybe what uh, I really like about the story that she's telling through the whole book is the way that she keeps a hold of her those relationships, yeah. right? Like, the way that she tends to... I mean, there's a period later in the book when she's a first lady and she thinks, like, I haven't talked to a lot of my girlfriends and, and friends back from Chicago, so she starts bringing them Go to, to Camp, Camp David, David, right? Yeah. right. <laughs> for which, for the, the boot camp thing, which I didn't yeah. think sounded really fun. Right, right. But, she apparently convinced her friends. So yeah. But <laughs> at least she was, you know, sort of reconnecting with those right. people, right. which I think is not easy to do. Dude, I mean, right, I, yeah. I'm definitely not that kind of a person, like the idea of, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to call up everyone I went to college with or something. Right. No, well, probably maybe if you had access to Camp David, you would. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. I want to go to Camp David by yourself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really do. I, I think I really do sort of admire that she does talk about that. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if she acknowledges, I mean, she does in that classroom situation. I wonder if she acknowledges in some of the other situations as much that how luck plays a part in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I always think of, uh, you know, that thing that in, there's a movie about, uh, I think about Truman Capote where he talks about like his cousin or something and like how Truman Capote went out the front door and his cousin went out the back door and that's, his cousin ended up being like poor, or, like a murderer, mm-hmm. some some crap like that. And Truman Capote, of course, ended up being really famous. And like <coughs> I think about that in my life with some of the people that, some of my cousins and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, I always think of it as, it's basically luck. Like it's, like it's basically luck that, you yeah. know, I had, my parents were this way and right. they left the town or they did this or whatever. Right. 
you know, it's not, it's yeah. very little about me. It's very well, little it's about... Well, it's and, though, right? I mean, I was going to think about your point about how there's, like, all this agency that she has in these, like, different situations. Where me, and part of the agency is maybe trying to think about who she should talk to and, like, kind of finding those doors and things like that. So right. I guess I feel like, yes, like, uh, yeah, luck not, has, like, say, a lot to do with... Right, like, I mean, I'm not saying it's up, completely but, luck, yeah. and, and certainly not in her case. Yeah. But I just wonder how much is she sort of recognizing that. yeah that i mean i think there could be more recognition there mm-hmm. but anyway mm-hmm. I mean, she does say you know like mm-hmm. certainly me and barack obama is like a turning point in her life and that's basically luck right that that <laughs> yeah. happened you know and um you know I, the classroom and there, there are all these other i, mean, I think she chooses to not talk about it as luck but to talk about it as structure in mm-hmm. really interesting ways mm-hmm. so like i'm thinking about the story of when she was younger and there were a lot of fires in the neighborhood and there weren't smoke alarms as much, right? And like, and the death of, you know, a classmate. Yeah. Um, I think she was in fifth grade, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, a, and died, the yeah. way she tells that story is kind of like, that could have been me, mm-hmm. right? Like I was in the same neighborhood with about the same conditions. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's luck, but it's also, you know, um, you know, her parents with a different sort of mm-hmm. set of, you know, things that they did in the house mm-hmm. or whatever, whatever's yeah. happening there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the school yeah. thing really, str- like, the first time she tells that Bryn Mawr story, she actually also mentions the issue of, like, at the time, I didn't think about the kids left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she seeds that, she doesn't let that story be a structural at any right. point, which is right. really interesting to me well of course then later i'm sorry (laughs) but later she that those kind of moments become um the impetus for her feeling responsibility to those kids that were left behind yeah no i was gonna say i think one of the biggest critiques though that is made of her book is about the structure right and kind of especially racialized structures Mm -hmm. and how she does and does not take into account that in the book, right? So one of the, and we can definitely, we'll post this, but Crystal sent us this article that was basically said, um, Michelle Obama's rule of ass- rules of assimilation, right? And one of the particular moments that she calls out the author, Erin uh, uh, Kaplan, is a moment when she talks about Reverend Wright. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of there's this line where she's basically like, well, there's, I mean, she doesn't quite say this, but basically she's saying there's racist on both sides. Um, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. And so I'm just like, I feel like she could have talked about that, especially now that they're no longer in the White House. And I understand why maybe they made the choices that they made while everything was happening. But, like, how do we talk about... Not to say that... I feel like everybody says objectionable things and everybody says things that are, you know, maybe not true to history or true to whatever. But I also feel like how can now we... How could she have taken into account, right, why there is sort of this righteous anger, right, mm-hmm. that, like, Reverend Wright, I think, was sort of voicing yeah. versus, like... Right. Can I I say one quick thing? Because I think it's more of a question. I mean, what this raises for me is really like, who is the primary audience? Who is she writing towards? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, and I, I I mean, I'll be interested to see what you guys think. I I really feel like even as it's a like really lovely memoir and there's a lot of like stuff that I was really excited to learn. It does feel like it's written um, very often for white people who actually still don't quite believe in racism. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, she's giving us stories that are intimate, 
um, observations that, uh, you know, presumably would help people understand, um, you know, so she talks about going to college, for example, and that these things that other people could take for granted in particular ways she's learning for the first time. Yeah. Um, kind of laying bare, uh, it's like a yeah. racism 101 yeah. or a, a structural yeah. racism yeah. 101. When I think about the um, audience, because because I've been thinking about audience for a little while, uh, first I just thought, oh, she's just not written this for black people, you know, basically yeah. white people. But now, I mean, now when the question is posed, I think her audience... Is the same audience as Oprah's audience. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yes. and, you know, and, and also, it's an Oprah book. It oh, is. Um, and yes. so, like, when we that's think of who Oprah tries to reach, you yeah. know, I think mm -hmm. it's a similar group of people where it includes black people, yeah. um, but mostly it's kind of this broad, general, um, touch everybody audience. Um, Whereas, you know, she would, uh, Michelle Obama would have to explain, um, kind of, you know, do racism one-on-one. -on -one. But then right. also understanding that, you know, the folks in that audience would want to be absolved from any type of complicity with, you know, racism and, you know, thinking about white guilt. And, right? and so thinking about the Jeremiah Wright incident, you know, she could have narrated that as, you know, this, this, um, I think the article also meant the Kaplan article mentions this. She could have narrated it as, you know, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Wright, you know, um, in black theology in the tradition of James mm -hmm. Cone, mm -hmm. kind of this um, this radical understanding of the ways in which, you know, the American project has failed black people um, and, and his willingness to lay that bare in church on Sunday. Right. She could have mm -hmm. written it like that. But what she does is she not only says that oh, there are racists on every side, but she cast Jeremiah Wright as this crazy yeah. weirdo. Mm -hmm. as, you if, know? as if he was, she heard something that day on that video she never heard that before. Exactly. Never heard. Well, she like, I didn't know he was like this. Right? I mean, she's, that's what she says, right? So this is 262, mm -hmm. 263. Um, so it says that it wasn't helped by the fact that ABC News had combed mm -hmm. through 29 hours of the Reverend Right sermon splicing together, which can a I jarring say, highlight. Reel. Twenty nine hours is not that much. Like <laughs> no. that's, that's not that much. She that's acts like, like yeah. they went through his whole history. Right. That's like like a half a year. Or something. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> and you know, actually, I'm sorry. And actually, excuse me, because so so I'm sorry. This, no, this, this so my family goes to Trinity, so that's why. So Trinity has like four church services a Sunday. Okay. So that could be a month worth of right, sermons. Right, like, right, and right. I think sometimes when, when Reverend Wright was preaching, he may have preached the same sermon, but there were moments where he was preaching different sermons mm -hmm. for each service. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get Reverend Wright during Black History Month, he gonna be lit. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and so... That is not how she describes yeah. it. No. She describes it as a highlight reel that showed the preacher careening through callous and inappropriate fits of rage and resentment at white, at white America. As if white people were to blame for every woe. Well, uh, Barack and I were dismayed to see <laughs> a reflection of the worst and most paranoid parts of the man who'd married us and baptized our children. Mm -hmm. Both of us had grown up with family members who viewed race through lens of cranky mistrust. See? Yeah. Uh, see, that's, goes out. This it is goes a on. pathologizing of yes. anger. Hold on, yes. hold on. Go, go to the end of the Perhaps it, this over caused us to overlook the most uh, more absurd parts of Reverend Wright's spitfire preaching, mm -hmm. even if we hadn't been present for any of the sermons in question. Oh, and of course, Seeing we're... Seeing an extreme version of his... We're the broadcast of the news, though, we were appalled. Mm, the whole affair was a reminder of how our country's distortion about race could be two-sided. That suspicion and stereotyping ran both ways. All right. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're patient enough to listen to Obama's Go ahead, take on it. Go ahead. Uh. <laughs>
Okay. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm gonna say some things. I'm not saying that you know white people are responsible for everything that's happened to black people in American history, but they're responsible for a lot of it. And <laughs> I think that it would not be illogical or unreasonable for someone to feel anger. Yes. About the way that they have been treated. And right. Jeremiah Wright was like, when he did those those sermons, he's like in his 60s, right? Mm-hmm. So he lived during the civil yes. rights movement. I mean, uh-huh. he was probably born in the 20s or 30s. Right. I mean, if you read, I mean, is it James Baldwin says any any black person yes. in their right mind, right. their dominant yeah. emotion, they feel is anger. Yes. Right. And yeah. so why would people be surprised that Jeremiah Wright would be giving an angry sermon about right. the experience of being black in the United right. States, right? So he was born in 1941. Okay, okay. Well, he's younger than I thought. He's younger than I thought, but mm-hmm. still, I mean, yeah. he was, you know, he was in his 20s during the, the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, I, I just think, you know, this is a Jeremiah Wright's a political problem for a campaign, right? Yeah. And it's a campaign run by smart people, but mm-hmm. run by white people, yeah. David Plouffe, Plouffe, and David Axelrod. And um, I think that Barack Obama, (laughs) you know, there's a famous speech he gave on race after this, right? But that speech is very, very accommodating, right? It tries to do a few things. One of the things that it tries to say to white America is, I'm not as black as you think. I have have white grandmother, white mother. I'm, you know, and they were racist too, right? I would hear my grandmother say these things. Off-handed ethnic generalizations. Right. But that's how Michelle calls it. It was a kind of comfort, a, a, a speech attempting to sort yeah. of comfort a panicking white country, which right. was not right. sure whether it was ready to have mm-hmm. a black person be yeah. in charge of the country, yeah. right? Certainly not an angry black person, right? I mean, right. So I sort of do right. understand it from like the political perspective, but right. it's like, why is she writing this this way? But now? I, th- I think she. I, so here's what I'm thinking, and this is going all the way back to when we're talking about audience and everything. Yeah. The I'll audience, <laughs> the audience, absolutely is. Um, I think she's thinking mainly of a white audience when it comes to the kind of persuasive yes. uh, gesture she's making. Right yes. when she's trying mm-hmm. to persuade us of something, she's mm-hmm. usually speaking to white people, especially when it has to do with race or anything and like that. And what is the message that she's trying to persuade white America to think about in terms of race? Well, I think she's what what we get is race is a thing. You if you think race isn't a thing, you're wrong. Okay. Race is a thing. But it's not a thing that we have to be all angry at each other about. <laughs> okay. and, and I think that's part of the the problem is when you try to remove like emotion, like intense emotion, anger, these sorts of things from the from the conversation, which is why we can't have conversations about race anymore, because if somebody gets angry or somebody says something that. Like, people are just like, well, can't you, I can't yeah. do Did you just, call? like, yeah. what you saw, saw on TV yeah. and yeah. Michael Cohen, right? Mm-hmm. Where uh, Rashida Tlaib, mm-hmm. what, is that her name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically said, I think it's a racist act for you to trot out a, 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 a black person. Right. How to dare de- you call me racist? Yeah, and he was right. like, you're, just, you're racist. Oh, he it's was like, crying. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Mm-hmm. And, on and, and, and I think, so now, I think not only is her persuasive message about race, I think it's it's intersectional. It's about black women, right? right? What okay. what she wants people to think about black women, right? right? And that it's that 
you don't have to be intimidated by us, right. mm. that we will be accommodating, that we will earn our grace. I hated that. Right. I hated right. that line right. in the mm-hmm. in the third section, right. um, that we have similar values as yeah. you, mm-hmm. um, that we have the same it's struggles. It's like a, a refurbished respectability yes. Yes. It is. Yes. Right? yes. It's very much, it reminds me mm-hmm. of, of Brent Staples' famous uh, Just Walk On By, oh, right? Whist- yeah. Whistling, whistling, whistling Bog. Yeah. Oh, Whistling mm-hmm. Bog. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he's a black man on the streets yeah, really, and yeah. he people are afraid of him but he if i just yeah. whistle you yeah. know vivaldi well, i mean there's a whole thing about like stereotype threat which is like a thing right, right, it's like right. Mm-hmm. sort of study well true true that, true but, yeah. yeah but i think you know yeah. when i would read that with with uh students of color particularly yeah. black students they'd be like that's yeah. bs he shouldn't have to do that yeah. right yeah. because that it, it what it does is it allows the structural right. issues to stay the same except that i think he was talking about as sort of a matter of survival right so as a black well, man like if you got a white person yeah. and you're like walking by the street and something would happen to you so which i think it's, makes it, me think it, about it like why read... she whistling with baldy right, right. So well it's it could seem to me as it, 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 i think I, she I've has a terrible insecurity as... Ooh. <laughs> damn you just threw a bomb <laughs> we just took a turn i i mean i i look at this book and, you know, not because I, mean, I think not only is she trying to explain who she is, but she's trying to prove that she's OK. Like she's trying to prove something about herself. <laughs> I just what? tried what to I to just prove? tried to whisper. Across she's the table. trying to prove that, that, that I think it goes back to <laughs> proving that you are a full a f- fully American. Like yes. you're fully you're fully a part of but why is she doing this now, right? Like I get like why they were doing that to get elected. But they've been elected. They've been president and first lady. Oh, that's why you're saying it's because of insecurity. Yeah, I, because I think I mean I think So she's not at the end of this whole thing being like, This is who I am, deal with it, America. No. Yeah. But so not? look, there is something really beautiful that I think goes against your argument, mm-hmm. right? So about this memoir. Which is this um, the the big arc that she has is that none of us ever com- you know fully grow up right that we are always growing we are mm-hmm. always becoming there is no okay. kind of place we are going to get to right so you know in some ways I I am not in total disagreement with Crystal <laughs> let me just say that but I do think that part of the reason she's doing this now is to prove, yeah, I'm not done. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. am still in process you, and yeah. I can still do other things. Do you think that Michelle Obama would talk this way when she's talking to her black girlfriends no. about these no. same issues? And so this is the no. interesting thing. I was I wanted to like pull out this quote from the same page, 263 of this moment of Jeremiah Wright. Because mm-hmm. in the very next paragraph, she's talking about like how people thesis, unearthed yeah. her senior thesis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And... She talks about, so they dug up the senior thesis, a quote, a survey that looked at how African-American alumni felt about race and identity after being at Princeton. For reasons I'll never understand, the conservative media was treating my paper as if it were some secret black power manifesto. Right. Oh, come on. As if you didn't understand, Michelle. You knew why they picked it up as some secret black power manifesto. What's wrong with black power manifestos? (laughs) Right. Like, it's a double thing, right? What's wrong with black power manifestos? And... You are being totally disingenuous. Mm-hmm. You are occupying this mm-hmm. position of somehow like I'm I'm not a threat. Like no. I the, have done everything you wanted. But there's me to there's do. super practice in that, right? Because they had to do that from the very beginning, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. They had to do it. We and I get that. Yeah. 
yeah. just, I'm like, I'm just curious. As so to you're, like but you're why, saying like, why, why do they have to keep doing it? Why not change that narrative a little bit, right? To what like, if you've just learned to, to do it so she, much that it becomes like a part? And she's still yeah. talking to white people, yeah. right? It becomes right. a natural it be a mixed Oprah audience, but it's yeah. predominantly yeah. white, yeah. Yeah. which is frustrating because right. I feel like she ends her book saying, you know. Um, Blah, blah, blah. She's talking about Hamilton, which I know you love. I love Hamilton. (laughs) So she says, uh, you know, um, she loved it because it reflected, this is on 415, because it reflected the kind of history I'd lived myself. It told a story about America that allowed the diversity in. I thought about this afterward. So many of us go through life with our stories hidden, feeling ashamed or afraid when our whole truth doesn't live up to some established ideal. Mm -hmm. We grew up with messages that tell us that there's only one way to be American, that if our skin is dark or Mm our hips are wide, if we don't experience love in a particular way, if we don't speak another language or come from another country, then we don't belong. That is, until someone dares to start telling the, that story differently. And I think she does, right? Like, there are particular reasons why she does tell that story differently, right? And I think thinking about sort of the things we were talking about that she reveals about her miscarriage and right. IVF mm-hmm. and all these things that, like, women don't maybe yeah. talk about. But I think, they're, like, her story of race... Isn't that different, right? Like, I think it is assimilationist. It is. And and I think going back to why I think this really shows her grappling with insecurity, because at the end of the day, you know, she's still this black woman, this outsider in a predominantly white world, especially at the level, at the echelon that her and Barack occupy. Like, no matter what she does to say, oh, I'm like you, oh, you know, give me grace, or I've earned my grace, she's still the black woman that people think all of these things about. And I don't, and I think yeah. you just can't get away from that. And, um, and she, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like, mm-hmm. and in the end, I mean, where this book ends, the path that Barack and Michelle Obama were trying to put the country on or trying to invite the country to go on with them, the it's country rejected, rejected exactly. it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I can see how uh, mm-hmm. in that moment you're like, well, so you're still like defending, right. Yeah. Still defending okay. it. Yeah. Um, and I think I want to say one other thing about this whole thing. I mean, it might sound like we're being, you know, critical of Michelle or in, in you know, judgmental. But I, th- I think she must know that black people are going to be with her no matter what. Right. Like, I'll say all these things about the book and I'll be like, Michelle Obama is I'm ride or die. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I remember there was a there was a skit on SNL where they were asking like a black focus group about what could Obama do for them to not vote for him, and it was like you know like there was nothing <laughs> that, that he could do, no mistake yeah. that he could make, right? And I think that's probably true of still most black people yeah. today because for us, Michelle and Obama, historical mm-hmm. did something none of us thought would ever be right. possible. I mean, if you remember, yeah. I think. Most of us on the first election night in 2008, I mean, I just remembered all the all of my relatives saying they'll never elect a black man in this country. That same kind of resentment and anger that Jeremiah Wright was mm-hmm. speaking to. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They'll never let us have a black president. Right. Right. And it happened. And people yeah. were just like, what? Yeah. And so forever, those two yeah. will be cemented in right. as as, oh, yeah. you know, as 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 like gods, as yeah. heroes of that's black right. people, but I, not so much I, for white people. Which is frustrating, though, also. Right. Because right. I think that's like the other thing. And you were like, my, and my relative, you know, my relatives were like, and what? But it's like, and what? Right. right <laughs> like, right, I think that's right. like mm-hmm. sort of this like irony of. Right, having somebody like they were well, the only ones. He was the only one who could have been elected, right. but also the fact that he's the only one who could have been elected says a lot about he's how the only far one who could have been elected. Right? And once and elected, so, he couldn't really do yeah. anything. Right, and he has to be like they both. 
are sort of symbolic kind of figures for right. the black community. Right. Which is part of the reason I think why she's so insistent on saying like, I did this and I did yes. this and right. this yes. is another right. thing that right. I did. Right. And yes. these things but when you kids, think about like yeah. real life sort of statistics, yeah. right? Like right. black wealth actually yeah. decreased right, right? Mm-hmm. during the time that Obama was in office right. and like the racial yeah. wealth gap increased. Right. Yeah. So yeah. they're just like thinking about how do we kind of reconcile these right. kind of symbolic representations. That was really important yeah. and like I feel right. like we can't. I'm not but just I think the thing is that it's still a, um, a memoir that's invested in social mobility and assimilation yeah. Yeah. as as truths as as you know mm-hmm. it's not just like aspirational like this is what she lived and so her story mm-hmm. is in some mm-hmm. ways the liberal multicultural story right. that yeah. um, mm-hmm. that in fact mm-hmm. if anybody dug into the statistics right like you, right. you just put on the table Anita like th- that it, it this is the fiction and we have a reality that is right. much more painful right. but like a, I mean, I think this is her story. So she yeah. can still have some hope in liberal multiculturalism, yeah. right? She, you know, like she can end on this note where like, if we only listen to each other, <laughs> right? Like listen to each other's stories. Sang along to Hamilton soundtrack. And, <laughs> and of course, liberal multiculturalism is also like yeah. much more appealing right. because right. it does let people right. off the hook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, this is, this is yeah. like in some ways, I'm a, oh, I feel bad about saying this. <laughs> Uh, you know, like, now because the, the hearing people's stories, right, that goes back to Barack Obama's community organizing. She talks about community mm-hmm. organizing mm-hmm. as helping people see how their stories connect, yeah. which is true. And then making them, you know, like, uh, kind of like helping people figure out what to do with that in order to gain political and social power. Mm-hmm. But the problem right. with, a, a, you know, like a call to, like, share stories in something like this is, it does not lead to political and social change. Right. Right. It leads to like a or to kind building of like, political right. power. Or right. Social right. Power. Yeah. Right. Could I just right. on that on that very subject? I just wanted to uh, offer an anecdote that I was at this. Um, <laughs> I was at this thing yesterday uh, on uh, gentrification with a bunch of mm. community organizers, mm-hmm. and someone in the audience asked them, like, what is the one thing that we could do to really, like, hmm. you know, to, mm-hmm. to um, you know, respond to gentrification, whatever? And one person was like, well, we can eliminate structural racism. That's what we can do. You know, and, and so it struck me that it had yeah. nothing to do with, like, Make sure that people's stories yeah, are connected yeah, right, with each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was Make like, sure that, it's know, something, we have to do something <laughs> real structural change, yeah. real political engagement, structural change. Like, that's what they do every right. single day. Yeah. Yeah. And to tell a different kind of story about that, I think even Barack Obama would have to admit that, like, I can have a bunch of people sharing their stories with each other as much as we want to. It's got to lead but to it, something. But it's got to lead right. to something. something. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm just laughing because right. I feel like, isn't that what the, they had the beer summit after um, That's right. Professor Gates was arrested in front of his own house trying yeah. to get into oh, his house? Right. And they were like, let's bring the cop together yeah. and Gates let's see, together. Let's for see it from his summit. perspective. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. I yeah. think we're getting close to. Our time, but uh, we—I mean—we've actually yeah, got much longer than you would normally oh, let no. us go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna wrap up quickly before we tell you what we're gonna be reading next. Just going around and saying, you know, something we're reading or something we're listening to, something that's bringing us joy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so I am not reading anything on my own for fun right now, but I did just teach Salvador Plasencia's *The People of Paper*. Which is just a really fabulous metafictional speculative fiction novel. 
um, blew my students' minds. They were like going, what? We don't blew understand. My mind not the <laughs> um, but I always have, I, I really recommend it. It's uh, a really great novel that thinks a lot about uh, the power of ma- men's voices to direct mm. storytelling mm. and how women push back or can push back. Mm. Mm. I'm glad you uh, gave us the option to say what we're listening to because <laughs> I just listened to two really great albums, totally different. You're always listening to good stuff. I lo- uh, you know, music is my thing. So Solange has a new album yes. out, When I Get Home. Um, but uh, maybe it was a couple weeks ago. It could have been released. Uh, earlier, but Gary Clark Jr. has a new album out called This Land, and they're both phenomenal. So check them out, Solange and Gary Clark Jr. Thanks. Well, I will. I'll bring the book and music together um, because I am reading a book by Hanif Abdul Rakib, which mm. is called Go Ahead in the Rain: Notes mm. to a Tribe Called Quest, mm. a tribe called Quest who is the greatest rap <laughs> group in the history. We won't fight you. We're, we're not going to fight you right like, now, come but at, later. Come at me. Come I'll at me. Have that. <laughs> All right. And it's really great. Um, so I'm really enjoying this book. Nice. Nice. Um, actually, my book is also about music. That's Ooh. awesome. We so didn't I'm even re- plan this. Yeah. What? Yeah. I'm reading this book called A Monsoon of Music by Mitra mm. Pukhan. I think that's how you say her last name. Who's a vocalist and an author from Assam, which is um, sort of the northeast part of India. And sort of the main protagonist is this sort of up-and-coming... Um, sort of Hindu classical um, musician, mm. and it's interesting because I feel like I know nothing about music, on, honestly, in any culture. <laughs> so it's like all mm. this like stuff about music and like Indian music is like really complex because there's all these like rags which are like melodies um, that have a lot to do with like seasons and all this stuff. And mm. honestly, like a lot of it is like over my head, but also it's like really intriguing even though it's like a really simple story of these like four people who are all musicians all i'm saying is i wish you could have all seen anita as she was telling about us about that <laughs> because she's like putting rugs in quotes i don't know why <laughs> i don't know why but like that there's know. all of this hand movement i feel like i'm like gonna mess it up and people you know um all right so we decided that since we have not read a play yet that our next book that we're gonna read is lorraine hansbury's a Raisin in the Sun, which was uh, originally published in 1959 when it was also a Broadway show. But if you don't have time to read the book, guess what you can do? There's two movie versions. Yay. We sort of recommend a little bit more the 1961 version with Sidney Poitier, but there's also a 2008 version with uh, Sean Puffy Combs and Felicia Rashad. Mm-hmm. You can check those out or, you know, read the book. That was a made-for-TV. <laughs> yes. so, but, you know, whatever. So that'll be our April playbook. And then in May, we're going to be um, analyzing some poems and talking about some poems by Dennis Smith from their book, Don't Call Us Dead. And we're going to try and put up actually some of their performances of the poems. So definitely read it, but also you can check out our website and see some performances. And we'll be talking about those poems. All right. We're good. Woo. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening. And as always, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher. Stitcher. And what's our website? And Our website is the Dripping Spoilers. Uh, .com because we're so awesome. Yeah, so check out the website. It has all of our episodes but also resources that we talk about in our episodes and we'll have this one up at least the episode itself up in a couple of days and the resources will probably take a little bit more time. But yeah, please listen. Let us know what you think. Comment on our Facebook page. Shoot us an email. We don't have swag yet but if we had swag, (laughs) would you buy it? Yes, and what kind of swag would you want? I think we could work on that. (laughs) Bookmarks. Yes, I like it. All right, thanks y'all. Bye. Bye. been listening to The Drip. 
recorded at my house in ice-cold, frozen, snow-covered St. Paul, Minnesota. The Drip is written, produced, and directed by the All Spoilers Collective, which is Anita, Adriana, Crystal, and me. Our mascot is Bash the Dog, and our music is by Lord Jordan X. We'll be back in mid-April for another new episode where we'll be discussing Lorraine Hansberry's classic play, A Raisin in the Sun. And now, I'm going to go out and shovel my driveway for the 400th time this winter. Until next time, peace.